this is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, the Super Bowl episode. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring in this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 44, dated February 4th in the year of our Lord, 2020. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. In this week's podcast, I will share with you some lessons I've taken from Super Bowl 54. I've been preaching about finishing. How you finish something is far more important than how you start. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs are great examples. I've been reading two different reactions to the halftime show featuring Shakira and Jennifer Lopez. Which one is yours will depend on whether you value carnal things or spiritual things. I've been hearing about female participation in sports and in every other walk of life. If women want to assume traditionally male roles, fine. But if I were a woman, I would resent the demotion. I've been playing pizza box football, the best tabletop representation of football I've seen. And like in real footballs, good strategy is no guarantee against bad luck. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. Super Bowl 54 was the first NFL game that the Hammonds family has watched in its entirety or near entirety. Anyway, we've caught the game after the middle of the second quarter or so. First one we've watched in several years, including Super Bowls. And so, therefore, I hadn't really seen Patrick Mahomes play. I had heard stories, the uh, best quarterback in the NFL, even in his third year. Uh, I was really looking forward to seeing him play, especially since even when he was in college at Texas Tech. We do watch college football sometimes, but uh, by the time he was in college, we weren't in Texas anymore. We moved to Florida, and so we really didn't see him in college either. Is he really worth the hype? Well, after uh, second quarter, third quarter, starting into the fourth quarter, the decided opinion in the Hammonds house was no he's not he looked uh, very definitely average or even worse than average he was not having a good day at all but you know it's not about how you begin the game it's how you finish the game and turns out there uh, in the fourth quarter of course if you watch the game you know what I'm talking about he led his team to three touchdowns on three consecutive drives in the fourth quarter and suddenly instead of being 10 points behind they were 11 points in front that's remarkable but what really impressed me about Mr. Mahomes on Sunday was his attitude in those waning seconds as the team was on defense trying to prevent a, a desperation score on the part of the 49ers. Uh, Patrick Mahomes was pacing the sidelines, talking to his teammates, and the, the audio was not turned on him at the time, of course, but you could read his lips. He was saying, finish the game, finish the game, finish the game. What a great lesson for us as Christians, as we engage in our spiritual struggle, as we engage in conflict with Satan. And sometimes we have good moments and sometimes we have bad moments. But through it all, of course, we have the anticipation that God is going to be with us and that he's going to grant us tremendous glory at the end of the day. But we have to finish the game. We have to stick it out. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 12, speaking of what he calls the resurrection from the dead, a complete reversal of things, a complete transformation into the the value system and the behavior system and ultimately the heavenly home of Jesus Christ himself. He says, not 
that I have obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Going through verse number 16 there. Paul says, I have not yet attained it. I am pressing on. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm reaching forward to that which lies ahead. Uh, that applies to short-term things and long-term things. Patrick Mahomes needed to forget about the bad things that had been happening in his life for the last couple of hours. He had not been a very good quarterback, by NFL standards anyway. He also needed to forget about the last couple of years when things were going extremely well for him, by and large. None of that had anything to do with that final moment. Finish the game. Push on toward completion. That's the message that we take away from this. Paul said that of himself as his days drew to a close. The last letter that we have recorded of his, preserved for us, is 2 Timothy. And the last chapter of that book, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse number 7 and 8, he writes here, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you push forward, if you anticipate the coming of Jesus and you love his appearing, if you're eagerly anticipating that day and living your life in anticipation of that day, and not just in a, in a general hopeful kind of way, but eagerly reaching forward to it, trying to achieve what Jesus has set out for you in this life with whatever time you have left. John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. We see night approaching. The end is closer than it was at the beginning. And so because of that, we redouble our efforts. We push forward like a marathon runner, seeing the finish line ahead of him. He pushes forward. He reaches more. There's got to be a little bit more left in the tank. That's what we do. We finish the course. We finish the game. It is for the one who endures, the one who pushes onward. That's the one who's going to receive the glory at the end of the day. There are a lot of people in the Bible who started well and finished poorly. There are people who started poorly and finished well. Much, much better to be the one who starts poorly and overcomes those mistakes and learns from those mistakes and pushes forward and achieves something great because God empowers him to do so. Much better that than be someone who has high aspirations and perhaps even high achievement in early stages, but peters out toward the end and does not finish the course. Nobody cares who's ahead in the marathon on mile 22. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the one who reaches the finish line first. We need to be competing to win this race. We need to be competing to finish strong, finish the game. That's the example we see in the Chiefs. That's the example that we see in the Apostle Paul. That's what we need to be exemplifying in our own lives as Christians. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Well, there seems to be as much conversation today about the halftime show at the Super Bowl as there is about the game itself, and the game was pretty interesting by Super Bowl standards. So let's talk a little bit about the halftime show. 
Shakira and Jennifer Lopez did not disappoint. They delivered the kind of show that they were expected to deliver, and more so. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing depends on your perspective. There are distinctly two different ways of looking at this, and I'm seeing plenty of both today. There are some people who are arguing that J-Lo and Shakira are examples of successful femininity. People who have risen to the heights of their profession based on their talent, based on their drive. They are examples to women to achieve in whatever their field happens to be, entertainment or, or anything else. They are examples of physical prowess that you do not have to succumb to the ravages of age. You can achieve great things even in your 40s and, and 50s. That you do not have to be limited by your society. You can push onward. You can achieve tremendous things, overcome barriers, etc., etc. Be role models to your neighbors, to your children, that sort of thing. A lot of people taking positions essentially along those lines. I'm taking the opposite position. You're not very surprised to hear me say that. That is to say that Shakira and Jennifer Lopez, in this particular context at least, are examples of what is wrong with our society, what is wrong with women, at least many women in our society, that they are seen as sex objects. They are seen as, as eye candy, as it were. That they are appealing to the worst of humanity, the worst of men and women alike. They are making our society weaker morally, weaker uh, culturally, and certainly weaker spiritually. Now, not everybody's going to buy that argument. In fact, some people are going to reject that argument in, in very strong terms. And I understand that because it depends on where you're coming from as to which side of this argument you're going to land on. And you're almost certainly going to land very strongly, very firmly on one or the other. Whether you are looking at this episode from a carnal perspective, whether you're looking at it from a spiritual perspective. And carnal simply means living in the flesh, the things of the flesh. It's not always necessarily a bad thing. But there comes a time when carnal things and spiritual things are laid side by side in stark contrast and we are forced to choose between the two. The best example of this in the text is in Galatians chapter uh, chapter 5, starting in verse number uh, 18 or 19 or so, where he starts talking about the deeds of the flesh or the works of the flesh as contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. And his whole point in this context, of course, is that we as Christians need to be led by the Spirit, which is guiding us towards spiritual things, spiritual values, spiritual uh, ideals in our life. And those ideals necessarily exclude the things of the flesh that he's talking about here. Anyway, obviously we, we live in the flesh. We live among human beings. We live as human beings. But there are certain things that are associated with a carnal culture, with a carnal mentality that we have to specifically exclude. And the first three of those that he mentions in verse number 19 are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Immorality is fornication, illicit sexual activity. Uh, we could have a discussion about how connected that is with what happened on stage at the Super Bowl halftime show some other time, perhaps. That's beyond our, our parameters here today. But certainly there is a, a connection between sexual thoughts and sexual behavior. We'll just leave it at that. The sexual thoughts is what comes next, the idea of impurity. Giving our mind over to things that are degrading, things that are unholy, things that take us away from God's ideals for us, the example of Jesus Christ. And then beyond that, sensuality, 
which is maybe even digging a little bit deeper into the human psyche, not just specifically sexual thoughts and sexual behaviors, but beyond that, what is our motivation? Sensuality in the most literal of senses, in the most obvious and, and central of senses, is going where our five senses are leading us. We value what we can see, what we can smell, what we can touch, what we can hear, the, the physical things that we have, that we deal with every day. This is our world when we're living a sensual existence, and therefore we want to touch things that we enjoy touching. We want to hear things that we enjoy hearing. We want to see things that we enjoy seeing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, that can be a noble thing in the right context. But in this context, it's talking about going in the way of sin, allowing our value for sensual things, physical things to take us away from the things of the spirit, specifically away from the things of the spirit. And the rest of these things, of course, are obviously bad things, at least if you have the values of Jesus Christ, if you're reading the Bible because you value what the Bible has to say. Now, this is contrasted, he says, with the fruit of the Spirit. In verse number two, uh, 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those are good things, and I would challenge you to find anybody in human society, at least anybody that's, that you want to spend time with, who's going to challenge you on those things. Those are good things. We need to live in a loving, joyful, kind, good, faithful world. That's a, a good thing. And we as individuals in that world need to be those things if we were to have a world that is characterized by those things. The question is, can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we be noble people? Can we have the fruit of the spirit that he's talking about here and have carnal values? have carnal priorities, pursue immorality, impurity, sensuality, and all the rest of these things. And Jesus' answer through the pen of the Apostle Paul is a resounding no. You cannot have both. You have to make a choice. That's why it says at the end of this in verse 22, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Obviously, we continue to live in the flesh. We continue to be human beings. But we are no longer motivated by those things. We've crucified the flesh. It reminds us of earlier in chapter 2, verse 20. I've crucified, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have given up those priorities. So therefore, any kind of value system that opposes spiritual things has to be rejected. We are not living our lives finding a way to balance our carnal desires and our spiritual priority. The spirit always has to come first. And that means saying no to sin. That means saying no to sinful influences. That means turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to all of the appeals that the devil has for us. It's not an easy thing to do. In fact, sometimes it may not seem even possible to do these things. But we need to exert ourselves in this area to exclude as much as we possibly can the deeds of the flesh from our life so that we can focus on the things of the spirit. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. I've been hearing. So the stage is set. A field goal, clearly a very important field goal, is about to be kicked. Two unidentifiable teams are lining up. The kicker measures very carefully, deep breath, 
Ball is snapped. The kicker follows through. The ball goes up through the uprights. The kick is good. Everybody goes crazy. It's a wonderful moment for everybody. And then the kicker takes the helmet off, and lo and behold, it's Carly Lloyd. Well, if you didn't see that coming, you haven't been paying attention for the last few months or so. Carly Lloyd, of course, the professional soccer player, woman, who uh, kicked field goals at the Philadelphia Eagles practice uh, earlier this, uh, before this, this season started, and has become a, a bit of a lightning rod with regard to women's roles in football and, and in life in general, as it were. This is a commercial that you may have caught during the Super Bowl. There were others also that followed along the same lines. One of them was featuring Katie Sowers, or Sowers, I don't know how you pronounce it, apologies to to Katie out there, whoever she, wherever she is, but uh, she's a, a coach, a football coach for the 49ers. You're probably aware of that. She was featured, and I did see that commercial. She was featured a lot and has been for quite some time. And the commercial, of course, zooms in on her and she tells her story, how she refused to be limited by expectations and what other people have done and what women have done in the past. She wanted to be a football coach. She wasn't going to be denied. She went out and got what she wanted and good for her, et cetera, et cetera. There was another one, too. There was an Olay commercial, which uh, was all about finding space for women. So a, a, a rocket ship is being launched. Olay is launching a why a skincare product line is launching a rocket. It's a little bit fuzzy, but it's, it's manned with women, of course. Most of them are actors. And they go up into space and lo and behold, look at all this space. There's all this space for women. And there's an astronaut, a woman astronaut on board who says, well, I could have told you that long before, which seems to argue against the whole tenor of the commercial. There are already women in space. So why is it such a deal that we're putting women in space? But anyway, and then one of them hits the, the wrong button and launches a couple of the astronauts out into space, presumably to die, which seems to indicate that women make bad astronauts, which seems to, again, go against the idea of the commercial in the first place. But hey, you know what? I'm not into that kind of thing. The important thing, of course, is the, the general tone of this and the halftime show at large also. Uh, the idea of female empowerment. The NFL has been very big into this in recent years, as you're probably well aware. The idea that women need to have an expanded role, that we need to uh, quit emphasizing traditional roles and open up new doors for women. I'm sure that a lot of that with the NFL has to do with selling female merchandise and getting women to go to football games and all that kind of thing, if I'm not sounding too cynical by saying that. But in a broader sense, it's part of a, a cultural movement to try to distance ourselves from the traditional roles of men and women in our society and in the society at large, historically. And I want to make sure that I'm understood on this point before we go any further. I don't want to get in any more trouble with women today than I already am in trouble. If you want your girl, your daughter, your sister, whatever, to become a football coach or to become an astronaut or become president of the United States or whatever, I do not necessarily have any issue with that. You do what you want to do. Ladies, if you want to feel empowered in such and such an area, you go be empowered in those areas. That's fine. My problem is this, that we have as a society, it seems to me, put ourselves in a position where women are being taught that they are underachieving, that they are failing somehow if they don't make inroads into traditionally male roles in society. If you want to be a, an elementary school teacher, if you want to be a nurse, if you want to be a housewife, you have failed your gender, as it were. I think that is shameful. 
I think that is insulting, both to men and to women, by the way. And it's certainly a denial of biblical truth on the matter. The Bible is quite clear who women are and who men are. And this goes back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. God made woman as a helper suitable for man, the text says. She is not a competitor for a man. She is not a substitute for a man. She is a helper. She is complementary. She does the things that he is not good at, just as he does the things that she is not good at. We make jokes about this all the time. We realize that men are better at opening pickle jars and women are better with counseling uh, grieving loved ones or, or fussy children and that kind of thing. We That's the way it is. It's not always that way. There are plenty of exceptions to that rule, certainly. But there is a very strong correlation, and there's plenty of science to back this up if you're willing to look at the actual science instead of your own personal philosophical or political beliefs. What we need to do in our society is not to completely abandon male-female roles in our society, nor is it important for us to Make sure that we never, ever have any overlap between what women are supposed to do and what men are supposed to do. What we need to do is simplify things and get back to the idea that is presented to us in the Bible, that the best thing you can do is be the very best you can be in the role that God has placed you in, wherever that happens to be. It it doesn't matter what role in society you're in. Be a Christian. Be a servant of God in that area. And I think it is just horrific that, especially with regard to young women, we have convinced or tried to convince young women that they are best suited by abandoning the thing, the very thing, the specific thing that God has designed for them to do that men cannot do. That's part of the context in Titus chapter 2, and verse 3 and following, where we're told here, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. There's a lot in that context that I don't have time or inclination to pursue at this point. But the main point is this, that the best thing that you can do is be the best man you are or the best woman you are, depending on which side God laid out for you. It's not to pretend like you're something else. There is a way to honor God, to glorify God, to achieve personally and to grow emotionally and spiritually and professionally even in a way that honors God, that honors your sex rather than trying to deny basic biology, basic common sense. Let's not force people to abandon what God has asked them to do. Let's encourage them to do whatever they want to do, yes, and to honor God in whatever that is, yes. In all of it, realizing that there are differences between men and women, and that's a good thing. That's a productive thing. That's a thing that God has given to us. It's a blessing from God, not a curse to be overcome. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. Pizza Box Football has a reputation of being an outstanding 
tabletop representation of the game of football. A while back, I had an opportunity to get a used copy, and I thought this might be fun to play with my daughter, Taylor, who enjoys football. Uh, Tracy, my wife, likes football too, maybe even more than Taylor, but this is not her thing at all. I thought that maybe this would be something for Taylor and me, and we got the game, and we played the game, and, and it's exactly as it was advertised. It is a very simplified version, of course, a very dumbed-down version of the game, but nevertheless gives you a feel for what it is to play football without getting sweaty and muddy and tearing your hamstring and things like that, which I'm in favor of all of those things. Basically, it, it boils down to this in a nutshell. If you're on offense, you're either going to run the ball or throw a short pass or throw a long pass. And if you're on defense, you're either defending against a run or a short pass or a long pass. That's it. Other than the occasional field goal or kickoff or punt, that's the game, basically. Running in short passes and long passes. And and I will spoil the ending for you here. Here is the strategy. If you want to win in pizza box football, here's what you do. You roll a lot of sixes. That's what you do. It's good to get into the head of your opponent, if at all possible, to you can set yourself up to a certain degree for success. There's no question about that, especially in the longer version of the game. There's there's shorter versions, and then there's a full version. The longer the game, the more the luck is going to even out, but there's always going to be luck. And if you roll sixes, if you're on offense, you're going to do fairly well. Even if the defense is set up for you, you're still going to have the opportunity, and a very good opportunity, in fact, to do well. If you roll ones and twos, you're probably not going to achieve very much at all, no matter what play you call, no matter what defense is called against you. And if it's a bat, uh, defense suited to stop you, it may go horribly wrong. That's the game in a nutshell. I, it's probably more interesting than I'm letting on here. It's probably more fun than I'm letting on. We enjoyed the game, and we'll probably play again for too long. But it reminded me that we are not in control of things as much as we would like to believe. We, we seem to have given ourselves this notion that if we plan properly and if we behave well and if we do everything that is expected of us by God and by society, by our family, etc., then we are somehow entitled to a positive outcome. And that's just not true. That never has been true. What is crooked cannot be straight. What is lacking cannot be counted, Solomon told us way back in the day in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The trick is not to create for ourselves an environment where we cannot possibly lose, where we cannot possibly fail. Especially as Christians, the trick is to create an environment where no matter what happens in life, we are content. Because in a nutshell, the only variable that matters at all in our lives is whether we are or are not pleasing to God, whether we are or are not going to heaven. If you are on a heaven track then no matter what happens or does not happen in your life, things are good. Now, you may get some bad luck. You may be, get some good luck. But ultimately, the only thing that matters is your eternal destiny, and that's taken care of. And therefore, you should be able to weather the storm of hardship, as it were. This is what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4. In verse number 12 and following, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Understand what he means by that. He's not saying there that Jesus is guaranteeing me a fair outcome. He's not saying that Jesus is guaranteeing me a, a six roll when I really need a six roll. He's saying that Jesus is going to empower me to find contentment and satisfaction and belonging and peace at all times, 
when th- times are good or times are bad, it doesn't make any difference. And ultimately, you have to acknowledge that is a far more valuable blessing than any sort of short-term good luck we might get. Certainly, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He showers blessings upon us. His, his mercies never cease. There's no question about that. And sometimes he goes out of his way, it seems like, to bless us with things that we could not possibly deserve, things that, that enhance our life to the nth degree. And we hopefully give God all the thanks and all the glory for things like that. But the much greater test of who we are as people, who we are as Christians, is how we respond in bad times, how we respond when everything that should have gone right goes horribly, horribly wrong. Paul is in the middle of a what we would typically call a streak of bad luck that's landed him in prison. And before too long, it's going to get better. And then it's going to get much, much worse. And eventually he's going to give his life for the cause of Christ. None of that has any kind of impact on his attitude, on his joy. Not in the long term, not in the big picture at least. I'm sure he got depressed like anybody else gets depressed, but he is able to find his joy. And Philippians is one of our favorite books for a reason. We like reading about finding that joy, that sense of, of peace and satisfaction in all circumstances, because we know that we have our bad days too. We have our runs of bad luck. And instead of hoping and praying and wishing for better luck in the future, what instead we do is accept the roll of the dice as it is, and give God the glory God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, as Job says in Job chapter 1. Find a way to glorify him where we are. And realize that maybe the next time we play the game, as it were, it'll go better for us. And maybe it won't. But either way, we're going to be Christians. And we're going to heaven when we die. That's the only important thing. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast, and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things, and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you will find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, The Citizen of Heaven, signing off. <laughs>